Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sedaticato, a psychotherapist and writer empowering clients and readers to nourish their feminine, while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present and how we eat, express, and relate, and what we can do to find meaning and reach balance. On this episode, I'm discussing empathy. Highly sensitive empathic attunement, those who have no empathy at all, empathy in the masculine and feminine framework, and how it can feel impossible to manage your empathy in times of global suffering. As always, before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. And now without further ado, here is this episode of the Feed the Feminine podcast. Something I wish I could go back and note at the beginning of every past podcast episode is something that I kind of want to remind you of as we move forward. Consider it part of the disclaimer. Um, Please listen to these episodes with two things that I think are always necessary to keep in the pocket. Curiosity and self-compassion. So even if I get passionate and kind of intense while I talk about these topics, Um, I think sometimes I may even sound a little angry, but that's just because I'm an Italian New Yorker and we get like that sometimes. I hardly ever say anything with judgment. In fact, I hope to foster some degree of self-exploration for my fellow humans with these episodes. And so in order to accomplish that, we have to be kind to ourselves. We can't judge every little thing that we start to see about ourselves, even if we don't like it right? We can have that initial reaction that like, ah, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, But we've got to allow some space for it because it is part of who we are. And that's part of shadow work and integrating our whole self in. So so start with curiosity and self-compassion, because those two tools to me are always the things that help make that. They, They sort of translate between me hearing things that I don't love about myself and actually then being able to just accept that they're there. Change can't happen from a place of condemnation. So be gentle if if something here resonates with you. So empathy is something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while because I think there's a lot of juicy stuff to really dive into. And it seems like it might be especially helpful to talk about it right now as we're in the midst of a global crisis that is forcing us to confront our empathy or maybe even avoid our empathy in ways that are pretty unprecedented, at least at this scale. So let's start with the basics. Empathy is defined as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. So in contrast to sympathy, empathy doesn't also involve feelings of pity or sorrow for somebody else's experiences. Now, there are different conceptualizations of empathy. empathy. For example, uh, Carl Jung would use empathy as a means of, of understanding a deeper psychological process, demonstrative of projections and a sense of trustfulness, as he says, that facilitates collaboration between people. And that's all good stuff. But I think for the sake of keeping this episode under 11 hours, uh, I'm going to give you my version of empathy and how I see it living or maybe dying in our world today. 
Another word you're familiar with but may not have heard since grade school. This is actually really interesting. As I was thinking about this episode and I thought of this word, I thought, this is such a an important word, but I really feel like I don't hear it very often. And that word is conscience. Not conscious, but conscience or conscience. <laughs> As a teacher, as a teacher of mine used to say, so that we knew the difference. Um, And so our conscience is defined as an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. I think it's really interesting how avoidant some of that language is. It's not saying the feeling or the voice is a guide. It's saying the feeling or the voice is viewed as acting as a guide, <laughs> um, which could just be the the definition of something so instinctual as it's run through the filter of like a masculine dominated culture because masculine dominated cultures don't or, or just the masculine in general does not put a lot of emphasis on instinct. It wants proof, right? So I think that that (laughs) definition in a masculine dominated culture kind of makes a lot of sense. But I actually don't hate the definition because I think it also indicates that the experience of our conscience is subjective. So if, if we're looking at the rightness and wrongness of things, a lot of what informs that is our primitive instinct, but also a lot of what informs that are the values that we have grown to find important that we want to live by that the the things that we want to have integrity through right uh so so i think it kind of makes sense our conscience matters a lot i mean a lot right it's what keeps us from harming one another so in a primitive sense humans like all species are primarily concerned with survival we want to not go extinct so for that reason among others Our conscience will be the thing that jumps up right as we're about to be like on the brink of doing something potentially harmful and say, you sure you want to do that? Now, we're all capable of doing these potentially harmful things for a variety of reasons, right? Curiosity, overwhelm, stress, desperation, just general day-to-day living. It's human. That part is okay. So long as we have that conscience that jumps in at the last in the last minute as the last line of defense and says, whoa, 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 you might want to pump the brakes for a second here. Have you really thought about this and the impact that what you're about to do is going to have? So it's a critical instinct. It it facilitates us being able to treat each other well enough, right? Doing what we feel is right, maintaining our sense of integrity and living with some sort of a collective mindset. That's why Jiminy Cricket encourages us to always let it be our guide, right? And our conscience pretty impressively runs well on its own without any ego intervention from us. In fact, it's the thing that interrupts the ego, right? And that's because the great majority of humans have empathy, which is the ability to understand and feel into the experiences and the emotions of others. That's the portal through which we can understand what impact our behavior may have on somebody else. That's the instinct that keeps us, even if just unconsciously, trying to understand our fellow humans to the point that we don't just manipulate them and treat them as pieces on a chessboard for our own amusement and advancement. Now, you may have noticed that I said a great majority of humans have empathy. Uh, And it's true that not everybody does. While they're not entirely alone, it's mostly those with narcissistic or antisocial personality organizations who typically lack empathy. 
And if you consider the role empathy plays in the activity of our conscience, you can imagine that somebody without empathy may be kind of unsafe to bond with. Well, actually, they're going to be impossible to bond with, but they might be unsafe to hang around with. And so folks with narcissistic or antisocial personality organizations or disorders, the latter of which, the antisocial, that's where you're going to find your psychopaths and your sociopaths. They typically don't have empathy because of early childhood trauma or neglect. So one way to conceptualize this, and I'm a big fan of analogies and metaphors and images, and some of them are kind of ridiculous, and you're going to hear some in this episode, and you've heard some in past episodes, so just hang in with me. Um, So one way to conceptualize this is that while healthily enough attached babies, not perfectly attached babies, but healthily enough attached babies, when they cry for food, safety, or comfort, they receive some type of response that addresses the need. And as this relationship develops, the child has a sense of an other. And because their needs are being met, they're developing a capacity to attach to the person meeting those needs. I imagine it like some kind of extra invisible limb that allows us to hold on to another person. So for babies who are neglected or babies who received like a harsh reaction, some something that was almost punitive for crying for their needs, they're either going to have nobody to form that attachment with or they're going to feel so insecure in that attachment because it's unsafe. And while they have a need and they're going to ask for it because that's their survival instinct, they're also going to know that they're going to start to develop this understanding that when they ask for that need, It may go completely ignored or they may be harmed because they are asking for that need. So as the relationship or the absence of that relationship progresses, the baby develops an unconscious, pre-verbal survival understanding that they're on their own. And that extra limb, that invisible limb that I imagine, it either doesn't develop at all or it develops adaptively to that environment, which is not a healthy environment. It's not an environment that fosters attachment or relationships or caring about other, right? So the limb is the thing that fosters empathy. That's, to me, I think, the kind of the, the, the function that it can serve. That's, that's at least the, the analogy or the, the metaphor of that in my head. If we know that there are other people who care for us, we will eventually learn to care back. We will know how to attach to another human person throughout the rest of our lives, even if that skill remains entirely unconscious. And so this is why I say I can typically sense when I'm in the room with somebody who lacks empathy. After a few minutes or sometimes a few conversations, depends on how well they're able to portray empathy, a sensation will start to fill my body. And I've always had that instinct, but... It was through becoming a therapist that I learned really what that sensation was. And, uh, you know, I love my analogies. And so here's one that I use for empathy. Actually, I use this one for a few different things. (laughs) I use it a lot. And so if you've heard me say this, um, I apologize, but just roll with it. So (laughs) if you've seen the movie, Look Who's Talking. Yes, I am referring to the 1989 blockbuster hit (laughs) starring John Travolta and Kirstie Alley Olympia Dukakis, and Bruce Willis is a talking baby. So basically, the Bruce Willis baby can talk, but only to other babies. 
The adults have no idea that pretty much since he was a sperm cell on the hunt for an egg to fertilize, the kid has a pretty sophisticated vocabulary and sense of motivation. So anyway, in the movie, there's a scene where Kirstie Alley, who plays the the mom of the Bruce Willis baby, is she's walking down the street in Manhattan with the baby in the carriage. And she runs into a friend of hers who also has a baby in a carriage. And guess what? Yes, that baby talks too. <laughs> so the moms are having a chat, but little do they know, so are the babies. And I use that visual to say that when we are having ego-level conversations with other people, the small talk, the meaningful chats, everything that requires a moving mouth to communicate words of a shared external language from our brain out through the auxiliary function uh, through which we can communicate actual words with each other, there's some other part of us communicating too. Just like the babies were chatting and the adults did not know that they were chatting. So for me, this unconscious level of communication we can exchange a lot in that, but we can also exchange connection that's fueled by empathy. Now, as an empath myself or somebody who is highly sensitive to what people around me are experiencing, when I meet a new person and exchange hellos with them, my Bruce Willis empathy baby also reaches out to say hello to their hopeful empathy baby. So when no one or nothing responds back, a red flag goes off and I might not consciously know what that red flag is, right? It, it may not entirely translate immediately to say this person does not have empathy. In fact, I, it hardly ever translates uh, that literally. But there's some sort of a spidey sense that goes off. And throughout the course of my time with that person, my empathy will keep reaching out to see if anybody's going to respond like an SOS message awaiting some kind of receipt, right? But the longer the call goes unanswered, the more my body tingles with some kind of recognition that this person may not have that invisible limb that allows us to connect in that way. And so let me be clear, this is instinctual. This is not something that's 100% accurate. I've been wrong before, although I would say it is actually a pretty accurate um, instinct. And whether or not you're an empath, if you have empathy, you have a similar thing happening in relationships with other humans. It's a human thing, right? It's it's a way of understanding each other. There's that going back to that idea of trustfulness that we have with others that Carl Jung talked about. If we if we know somebody else has empathy, there's a, a wider range of trustfulness that we can have with that person than with somebody who does not have empathy. Because it's almost like at the end of the day, our empathy, our conscience, it's like our fail safe, right? Even if we have sinister motivations, if we can tap into each other's empathy, then maybe we can we can sort of subside, subside any threat that might be present. So I think it's important to say that not all people who struggle interpersonally lack empathy, just because maybe somebody seems like they don't have empathy, it doesn't like, maybe they behave kind of selfishly, or they just seem to never care about your feelings, it doesn't necessarily mean they don't have empathy. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a couple minutes, but I would just say don't use this rule as a catch-all, but perhaps it can give you some context to your instincts about your safety in relationships, because we all have those instincts, whether or not we're listening to them, and then whether or not we know how to maybe translate them. Earlier, I said that our empathy supports our conscience, which is the thing that prevents us from harming, manipulating, or exploiting other human beings, at least without pause, remorse, guilt, shame, regret, 
that sort of thing. So somebody without empathy is going to be just fine exploiting other people because to them, it's not exploitation. It just is, right? It's a means to an end. And they don't have the instinct that says, hey, this could hurt someone and I should care because X, Y, Z. Remember, these folks likely did not have anybody caring for them from a pre-verbal state of existence. And they don't have that function to recognize or feel very many of their own feelings, much less other people's feelings. So the idea of using people like pieces on a chessboard always seems to ring true for me when I recognize antisocial behavior. And that's because the person without empathy thinks it's silly and ridiculous to be worrying about other people's feelings. To them, it's just an inconvenience that slows down their determination, their pursuit of their goals. And so they will kind of use people as pieces on a chessboard um, to facilitate what they want to get out of life, whether it's that job promotion or all sorts of things, sometimes uh, certainly relating to power. They just do what they got to do because they don't have that filtration system, right? I would even go so far as to say a lot of times they don't even mean harm. They just don't understand harm in that delicate kind of sense. So, of course, I think, you know, I say this about most things. I've certainly said this about uh, personality organizations, that they exist on some kind of a spectrum. You notice that I say personality organizations and not personality disorders. And that's because a personality organization can become disordered, but it doesn't necessarily have to be disordered. Now, antisocial personality is uh, pretty, that's a pretty tough one to uh, be benign about because with the lack of empathy, that just inherently creates a, a lack of safety and, and certainly unpredictability. But it doesn't mean that all people who have antisocial personality organizations are like impulsively dangerous and like going to kill you. Do you know what I mean? And maybe maybe there's a whole episode in there of just kind of breaking down the differences between those folks. So on the opposite end of that, though, and perhaps this is the opposite end. I'm not even really sure if it is this, but but we, let's move into the, the area of talking about an empath, which is somebody who arguably might feel too much empathy for other people. Now, just being highly sensitive to others isn't a problem in and of itself, but unmanaged it could certainly lead to a great deal of heartache. That's for sure. Now, those without empathy view empathy as silly and inconvenient, but I also see similar reactions to empathy on a cultural level, in the Western world at least, which is strange to me, given what I've noted about its fundamental importance and truly its beauty in our human experience, right? But but beauty aside and kind of marveling at the wonder of empathy, like I said before, it's a, it's a huge like primal function that we have that keeps us from from harming each other. So the fact that our our culture sees it so negatively, it sees it as something to sort of, you know, it's like a barrier that you just got to get over and move out of the way so that you can keep, you can keep working toward your goals. Uh, I don't know, that's a little not great. Um but masculine-dominated cultures are going to be heavy on the side of boundaries and protection and provision, which would translate to money in capitalist societies. And so empathy goes the way of the narcissistic or the antisocial conceptualization, which is to say that it is weak and it is not worth the trouble. It slows you down from getting where you want to go 
And so what's the point of it if it's just going to get in the way? Now, for the sake of full transparency, whenever I talk about this, I tend to enter my own empathic and ethical dilemma, because I believe the sentiment of a particular comedian on this topic was right on. But this particular comedian also surfaced in the Me Too movement. And uh, while he owned his behavior and offered an apology, one that I initially thought was actually ripe for education and growth, and I thought it was great and I really celebrated it, um, his subsequent behavior and kind of minimization of his actions started to feel to me kind of inappropriate. And so it's okay if you disagree. It's not a debate about whether or not this person should have a career or not. It's just for me, I'm trying to uphold my own imperfect values here. So quoting him feels kind of wrong, right? And yet my conflict is that his description of the lack of empathy on a historical and cultural level is kind of important. And I also think the fact that he was a man saying it in a masculine-dominated culture might have some legs too. So forgive me as I borrow the sentiment from Louis C.K. on one thing that I found him to actually be right about. So in one of his stand-ups, he talked about how pyramids, railroads, and even the modern technology we use today, like smartphones, are considered marks of human achievement. They're the things we celebrate and point to and say, look what we can do. Aren't humans amazing? But he adds that the way those things came to be were through slave labor. Even today, the creators of our smartphones are suffering in terrible working conditions. They're getting paid unfaid wages. They're under immense amount of stress. I might even argue that companies like Amazon exist similarly, where workers are extended beyond their capacity with insufficient reward, and yet the wealth and the praise, it all just settles at the top. And yet we marvel at the smartphone and the two-day prime delivery as though they're advancements without consequences. Like they're the mythical free lunch that we know doesn't exist, but we want to believe that it exists, right? And so Louis C.K. says, quote, there's no end to what you can do when you don't give a fuck about particular people, end quote. I mean, that's ironic considering the behavior he was later accused of, but on a larger scale, he's right. And when we look at how we define human greatness culturally, which does tend to be with a nod to technological advancement, we seem to value empathy hardly at all. In fact, empathy is typically the thing we readily sacrifice. Sometimes we even proudly sacrifice it in order to make those technological advancements. And I'd argue then that technology is not the thing that creates human greatness. Empathy is. Empathy is our most unique asset as humans. And in an alternative version of our culture, one where perhaps the feminine has more of a say in how things go, I bet we would be farther behind in technology, but we would be a lot more community focused. And I think that's worth being proud of. We define our collective success through the wrong measures. At least that's my opinion. And I absolutely recognize that I'm saying this through the marvel of our technological advancements. That is not lost on me. But if we lived in an alternative reality where I could not create a podcast because we didn't have the technology readily available, but we were kinder and more nurturing to each other, well, perhaps I wouldn't feel the need to have a podcast and I would spend my time doing other things. And make no mistake, I hear in my head what you may hear 
in yours, which is judgment of that sentiment. The one that has sort of a kumbaya quality to it. Oh, couldn't we all just get along? It sounds absurd. It sounds absurd to to qualify that as just as important as the technology that we have created, because arguably technology does not just include the internet and smartphones. It also includes like space travel and defense and things like that, right? So it sounds absurd. But does it sound absurd because it is absurd? Or does it sound absurd because we've been drinking the Kool-Aid of a masculine-dominated culture that conditioned us with the narrative that feminine qualities, including empathy, are weak and silly and inconvenient and a barrier to actual, quote, success? I was on a friend's podcast a couple of months ago. I don't even know because time has been standing still since all of this COVID stuff has been happening. Maybe it was in February or March. It's the Live, Lift, Love podcast. You can check it out. Um, I have the link to it on my Instagram, in my Instagram bio. But he asked me, my friend Clifford asked me in that interview, um, you know, what sort of example I could give of a world that I'm hoping for, that maybe I'm even preaching for through the Hungry Feminine. And what I would say is a world sponsored by the Hungry Feminine is not one that is all empathy and no productivity. In fact, the world that I hope for is one where we can both focus our efforts on technological and financial growth without being so willing to use human life and human health and human experiences as the currency for it. Even if that means we have to go a little slower to make sure everybody's accounted for, that's fine. Now, empathy on an individual scale is its own conversation. And controlling the dial of it is important all of the time, but especially during global hardships where we remain confronted with tragedy and health fears and political confusion or frustration on a daily basis. I remember early on in my time in graduate school for psychology, and I should qualify that all to say that I had immense privilege to go to a grad school that fosters us beyond just in regard to academia. I mean, I think even getting to go to grad school in general is a privilege. But this was a school that recognized that as, as therapists, we ourselves were going to be the tool through which the work was done. And so not only was it important that we knew the theoretical orientations and how to manage crises and mitigate risk and support our clients on the path to self-regulation and self-discovery, we also had to do our own work to know who we were so that our own stuff would not come up and get in between our clients and their work. So we had experiences at grad school that challenged us as human beings, that forced us to know ourselves and recognize our defenses and uh, really move through some shit, for lack of a better phrase. That's how you know it's personal when I say things like move through some shit rather than mitigate risk and adapt to, th to theoretical orientations. <laughs> um so rather early during that time, maybe a few months into grad school, I was having a phone chat with someone I knew for a long time who told me that I ought to be careful about what grad school was teaching me because it seemed like my empathy was starting to dim and not, as they would have expected, increase. And I thought it was so interesting that this person was feeling less empathy emanating from me while I was in the midst of studying to become a therapist, which arguably needs to be like the most empathic person ever, right? And actually, shortly after the call wrapped, and I was able to process that conversation, 
I actually realized that I was quite relieved to hear them say that because what I realized was graduate school was not teaching me to be less empathic, of course. It was teaching me to be more cautious and controlled about my empathy. And this is an important component to having empathy. So let's put a pin in the phone conversation for a second and all of my seemingly depleted empathy. Um, Let's venture into the feminine masculine understanding of the empathy and then I'm going to come back to this. So empathy is a critical core human function, right? However, empathy cannot exist on its own. Empathy without boundaries is dangerous. That's where the feminine and masculine yin-yang balance shows itself to be profoundly useful. Empathy here being a feminine light trait, boundaries being a masculine light trait. So let's break it down. When you have boundaries with no empathy, which would be a manifestation of masculine dominance, you're going to experience a lack of closeness with other people. You might be viewed as cold or selfish, and connecting to other people will be difficult because you will have a wall propped up around you with nothing reaching over it to whomever may be on the other side. People will do this because it feels safe, among other reasons, although it typically leads to some kind of distress because as social beings, we need to connect with others. And without some degree of empathy being able to reach through that wall or over that wall, it's pretty hard to do that, right? This also has legs to move into the masculine shadow category, where you may start to see others as other, like an adversary, like somebody that's a competitor to you, somebody who's unsafe to you, somebody you have no regard for and may have no problem taking advantage of in order to get what you want. That's when masculine shadow traits like theft or force or narcissism or exploitation can just come alive. Now, I want to be clear about something. It's possible to have empathy, but have it blocked by various defenses, meaning going back to the narcissistic and antisocial personality organizations that typically have a lack of empathy altogether. There are people who have healthy enough attachment and they have that invisible extra limb to facilitate empathic attunement and connection. But due to other life experiences, they may have blocked it because it may feel unsafe to engage in empathy. And so for these folks, use of empathy is attainable again, but first they have to work through the barriers that are standing in the way. So now let's flip that, right? That was if you have boundaries with no empathy. If you have empathy with no boundaries, which is going to be a manifestation of feminine dominance, you are going to experience what pop psychology defines as codependent relationships. In that situation, there's not going to be a line between you and the person you're leaning into. Your stuff and their stuff will start to blend and blur and twist to the point that you can no longer tell if you are feeling your own feelings or theirs. This is messy territory, and it's not the stuff of healthy relationships. We never want to be entirely feeling the emotions of another person to the point that we think they're our emotions. We can empathize and understand and even share feelings, but we have to be able to know and identify and separate our own feelings and wants and desires and needs and personality and all of those things. So there has to be some degree of separation. People who love loving other people will really struggle with this. And none of this is to pathologize anybody, right? 
I don't like pathologizing anybody, even if I'm using language that seems diagnostic or pathological. It's just meant to be descriptive for the sake of understanding. And that's where this is a quick reminder of using curiosity and self-compassion as we navigate these things, right? Because it's just understanding how you may or may not fit in to the world, what some of your dynamics are, not necessarily saying you're broken and you need to be fixed. That's not the point of any of this, right? So there's a reason Al-Anon meetings exist. And for those of you who don't know what Al-Anon meetings are, think of 12-step meetings, but for the loved ones of alcoholics or addicts, not the alcoholics or addicts themselves. And it's not necessarily a support group in the traditional sense that you might think. It's its own kind of recovery group because it is not uncommon for folks who are in relationships with addicts to have some codependent tendencies. The codependent person, and I'm, I'm saying this as a codependent person, by the way, the codependent person gets something from caring from somebody who struggles so immensely. They have empathy to such an intense degree that they put the needs of the other person first and hold themselves into this role of needing to take care of the other person. Some people may classify this as an addiction all its own. That when we have such a strong empathic pull without any boundaries and we, we act from a codependent place, it's because we're perpetuating some role that tells us others should be placed before our own needs, that we're responsible for the health and wellness of other people, that we have more power than maybe we really have, and that our own wants and needs can just be saved for another day because they're not important. There's a lot of avoidance in self in there. It's sort of like, let me help you so that I kind of am not addressing my own stuff, right? There's a lot of deflection. And quite honestly, there's a lot of deprivation in that. A lot of folks who have food issues tend to struggle with these codependent relationships because there's a starvation of self that happens in relationship. And then once alone, the self demands to be acknowledged as it should because all of ourselves want to be acknowledged. So in those moments, that's where there's a sort of frantic feeding that may happen. So in that, you can see an opportunity for restricting and binging food relationships. Or even as Clarissa Pinkola Estes mentions in the Women Who Run With the Wolves, a too good slash too demanding dynamic where the codependent person acts from that boundaryless empathy in order to be good, in order to say, look at how good I am. Look at how I'm caring for others I'm creating such immense self-sacrifice. And then later in the day, there's some sort of, there's a seeking of a, of a reward for that self-sacrifice, even if nobody asked them to make those sacrifices. And even if somebody did ask them to do it, it's likely they would have been better off using their empathy to set boundaries rather than to allow their empathy to take over entirely. Because I think in that state of mind, we don't always recognize our limitations with other people. So... A lot of people I know who cherish empathy and their compassion for others, they experience boundary setting as a mean thing that they're uncomfortable doing because of how enmeshed feelings have become and because of how responsible they feel for the other person's feelings, right? That's where empathy becomes dangerous is where you tapping into somebody else's feelings suddenly makes you responsible for them. The truth is that boundaries make connection and relationships safer. So if you set boundaries with somebody, it's not rejection. 
It's rather an invitation in to a safer relationship. There's a quote floating around somewhere on the internet that I'm not meaning to jack uh, when I say this because they put it succinctly probably better than I just did. But, but that's just the general idea of it. To have something of a balance of empathy and boundaries, which would be ever wavering and you'd have to maintain it, right? It takes practice to maintain that. You can be in a relationship with an, a- an addict and love all up on them, but also know that they have to take care of themselves, right? You can want to support somebody while also allowing them and even needing them yourself to have their own sense of agency and accountability because we can love a person and also not be that person. We can't be that person. When you have empathy without boundaries and all of your stuff starts to blend together, you start to think that you are the same person in some way and that you then can manipulate their behavior, not in a way that is as blatantly self-serving as sort of an antisocial approach, although it is still self-serving because it's something that makes you feel good as the person who's overreaching in their empathy. It is just not true. You cannot, I mean, you can influence people's behaviors and we can debate about whether or not we should be doing that, but we certainly cannot dictate somebody else's behaviors for them. And we certainly can't dictate somebody else's motivations and emotions and all of those things for them, right? So revisiting that phone chat, right, that I was having where I was accused of losing my empathy, here's what was actually happening. The person I was talking to happened to be somebody that I was in a codependent relationship with. And this was a relationship that was mutually codependent, meaning both of our addictions were each other. And in that relationship, we conditioned each other to expect certain responses from one another, as we do in relationships, right? Behaviors beget behaviors, and then expectations of the conscious and unconscious variety are born. So what this person recognized wasn't that my empathy was waning so much as I was setting some healthier boundaries around the empathic access that they had to me. And boy, did they notice. In that conditioned relationship, boundaries will start to feel like rejection or dismissiveness or perhaps like the other person is just being an asshole. So one thing we we must remember when we're addressing our own empathy and how to be in control of the dial is that whether our empathy was running, completely running the show or never made it to the stage at all, the people in our lives will notice when the dial turns because, because we're, they're the ones that we're connecting to, right? That doesn't mean that we have to stop growth and keep engaging in the same dynamics so that we don't rock the boat. It just means we have to be mindful and perhaps even communicative about what we're doing and why we're doing it and that we respect the other person's experience but still need to soldier on for the sake of our own health and a healthier relationship. Actually, I had a graduate school instructor, the illustrious Dr. Matthew Bennett. He compared being a therapist to kind of being a space traveler and entering the orbits of the visiting planets, which is which would be our, our clients. And you have to enter the orbit, but you also have to stay high enough in the atmosphere that you can leave when it's necessary to. And I think that's a great metaphor for the balance between empathy and boundaries. We can enter people's orbits, but that does not mean now we live there and that we are responsible for governing the planet. I I think it's really important to note that since we live in a masculine-dominated culture where empathy is not really fostered as a value of our society, and then the extra step is that 
it's actually seen as weakness. Our own individual relationship to empathy may respond to that. So in other words, I had an overactive empathic limb because I felt my value was attached to what I could do for other people. I learned through a series of events in my life, unconsciously, that in order to feel like I was worth inclusion, I had to know other people's needs before they even knew their needs so that I could provide what they needed and helped them in a way that I believed that they could not provide themselves or support themselves or help themselves. And you've heard me talk about the martyr archetype and my God, if this isn't it, I don't know what is, right? But part of the reason my empathy became so much bigger than me was because most of the cultural feedback I got wasn't about how to foster empathy in a healthy way, but rather to get rid of empathy altogether or quiet it and sort of, you know, put it in a cage when necessary so that I could continue to to get done what I needed to get done. So I, as a response to that, I almost doubled down on my, my own use of empathy in a sort of from my cold dead hands kind of situation where I metaphorically shouted, my empathy has value, hear me roar so many times that I forgot empathy was not my only value. I'm going to talk more about this in, in a future episode about the feminine shadow and the toxic feminine, which is one of my favorite subjects. So stay tuned to that because I'll elaborate a little bit more there. But back to the present. So in a time like now, with the COVID quarantine in full swing, more than a month into it, for most of us here in the US at least, having empathy at all can be exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. Depending on your relationship to empathy and how able you are to control the dial on it, this can be a very challenging time. So I think filtering how much news gets into your energy fields is an important way to set boundaries on your empathy during this time, especially if you find yourself feeling helpless and overwhelmed by an onslaught of bad news, which granted there is good news out there, but I have found that mainstream media tends to gloss over that and stick more with the stuff that gets us all riled up, right? So look at look at what you're consuming there. And see if there's a need to set some boundaries. Now, don't Pollyanna the situation or shut down your empathy altogether, but also don't think that you have the entire weight of the world on your shoulders and that you need to dive headfirst into the worst of it day after day in order to fulfill your responsibility or find your value or feel like you're doing a good thing. You got to make sure you're putting your needs first. This is absolutely a put your oxygen mask on before you help others kind of situation. So don't deprive yourself of your own needs because you think others' needs are more important. And I would also say that it's okay, not that you need permission from me, but (laughs) it's okay to have your own personal experience amidst a global experience, whatever it is. It took me a long time to really integrate that knowing into myself. As somebody who lived in New York on September 11th, I know how guilty I felt for spending a bit of time each anniversary after that reflecting on my own personal experience of the day and the way that it changed me. Because it changed me. Significantly. I tended to hide my personal reflection. So if I was writing something, I mean, I think I wrote some very powerful things in the anniversary shortly following September 11th, but I never shared them with anybody because I felt so guilty. It felt wrong. It felt like I would be dishonoring those who lost loved ones or who experienced direct trauma from that day. 
But reflecting on your own personal experience does not mean you're abandoning others and their experience. It does not have to be absolute. It's not all or nothing. The truth is, the person that I woke up as on September 11th was not the same person that I went to sleep as that night. I don't think any of us were the same person when we went to bed that night. Taking some time to reflect on that and recognize that and feel all of the emotions that come from that, noticing the changes that happen within you. Just because I did that does not mean that I didn't also grieve for my city or for my friends who lost loved ones or for family members who worked at the Trade Center and were certainly not the same after that. Multiple things can exist at once. I think we forget this sometimes. I think we're a culture that feels like if we have two opposing things or two things at all, whether or not they're opposing, they have to be mutually exclusive. We've got to make a choice and we've got to throw the, the other one out. And I just don't think that's true, nor do I think that that's fair. Not everything needs to be a competition about what's more important. And I would even argue that that idea that it is a competition is another side effect of a masculine dominated culture. So make some space. Make some space for both things to be able to exist. In this situation, you can extend never-ending gratitude to healthcare workers. You can show up for friends who have lost loved ones to COVID. You can help those who are immunocompromised in a way that is safe. You can do what you can to use your privilege in impactful ways, like donate to local food banks, right? Donate blood or blood plasma. I forget what exactly they're asking for um, and make sure that you fit the criteria for that. But you can pressure your congresspeople for better protections, especially for black and brown people who are in the community and are being disproportionately affected by this. You can encourage others to keep taking safety measures to keep the curve as flat as possible. And you can also feel your feelings and reflect on your experiences too. You can grieve for what you've lost, even if it's not a person, even if it's your wedding or your birthday or plans that you had to travel or uh, all types of things, right? I think every day I'm realizing little by little, like, oh crap, that's gone, you know? And that sucks. And I would do no, it would do no help to anybody if instead of allowing myself a little bit to just like process that and reflect that, that I just said, oh, well, my problems are not as bad as other people. So I just need to buck it up and get over it. Who does that help? That doesn't help anybody. At the beginning, I, I put out a special COVID-19 edition of the podcast a while ago. This is like the end of March, which feels like it was an entire generation ago. So I I, I don't even know if m much of what I said in that was even still relevant because of how fast everything has been changing. But I think the one thing that remains relevant is that idea of privilege and how important that is, how important recognizing privilege is. I should be more specific. So, so recognizing privilege is important. Being disabled by privilege, it's the opposite of effective. It's the opposite of what we need. Feeling like you can't exist because other people's existence needs more support. Again, that doesn't help anybody. We all have limits on what we can do and how we can help. And that's just the way that it is. There's an Alan Watts quote that I read years ago in one of his books, but I never notated it. And I have not been able to find it again, though that is not through a lack of trying. Um, so forgive me if I get something about this wrong. But the general sentiment was that privilege, especially Western or first world privilege, as he was writing about, it should not be seen as an affliction that you need to be ashamed of or try to get rid of necessarily, 
but one that you can use to help others get the same opportunities as you. So Watt said that privilege was like having an extra limb, not quite the invisible limb imagery that I had for empathy, but perhaps not unlike it either. This limb, you can put it to good use for the betterment of the world that you occupy. I think there's something understandable about wanting to get rid of privilege at all. But you don't get rid of privilege by cutting off your own limb. You get rid of privilege by using that limb to support others who are without it in service to them gaining their own strength, their own extra limb. You get rid of privilege by using your privilege and contributing to an equitable society, not by trying to chop off your own arm, not by trying to hide your arm because you're ashamed of it, and certainly not by pretending your arm doesn't exist. Use it which is a good actionable exercise for empathy, actually, and the helplessness that may arise in these types of situations. But again, these things are not mutually exclusive. So if you have empathy for others, you might also want to give some self-compassion to yourself. And part of being able to do that is also being with yourself in your own needs. There's a time and a place for all of it. So you get to grieve and be angry and feel lost and hopeless or worried or hopeful. And perhaps even you're having fun in quarantine because you found a way to make it cool and sustainable. That's awesome. That is also privilege. And that's awesome. Both can exist, right? Feel all of the things that you feel. And in the moments when you feel clear and strong and that your cup has been refilled and you've got something to spare, help out some others, whoever they may be. Let your empathy simply light the path. And always let your conscience be your guide. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, I couldn't help it. Uh, So there you have it. I would love to answer any questions that you have about empathy uh, that maybe I wasn't able to address in this episode. And you can get those questions to me by either emailing thehungryfeminine at gmail.com or sending me a DM on Instagram at thehungryfeminine. Just note, please, that I'm not able to address personal or clinical inquiries, but I would be happy to answer more general questions that you have about empathy, either during this COVID situation or, or broadly speaking. As I mentioned earlier, I will be offering an upcoming podcast episode on one of my favorite topics, which is that pesky little feminine shadow and the way that the archetypal feminine can be kind of violent in sneaky little ways. And I've also gotten the works, an episode in the works addressing the ways that the repressed feminine impacts men in our culture. And that's based on a blog post that's already published at The Hungry Feminine. So if you're curious about that, you can go check that out. That would be thehungryfeminine.com slash blog. And some other episodes are coming up this month that may address COVID things, but won't entirely rest there. So if you're interested in that, be sure you're following on all of the things. And uh, thank you for joining me today and I'll catch up with you next time.